Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. So I get to introduce a wonderful guest today, Jeffrey S. Lapore. That's what your bio says. Jeff is the founder and president of Lapore Partners, which is a commercial real estate and hospitality development firm that is active in the Western US. Before I continue, I've always known you as Jeff, call you Jeff. Does anyone in your life call you Jeffrey? No. My mother used to occasionally, but it usually was if I was in trouble for yeah. something. Yeah, I kind of figured. Yeah. So for the last 20 years, Jeff has led development ventures as a principal on over 5 million square feet. You can fact check any of this if it's increased since. It's increased probably quite a bit, but it's, it doesn't who's measuring matter. Anyway. It doesn't matter. Who's measuring? Right. The import- <clears throat> so you build office, industrial, and hospitality, which makes you a kind of unique developer. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, but that's not the only thing that makes you unique. It's also because you have a focus, maybe a a joy for complicated projects. Uh, Your bio continues that you began your career with Hilton Hotels. I imagine not as a developer, but maybe I'm going to ask you more about your your arc. Uh, From there, you did a stint as a commercial real estate broker, and then you fulfilled your ultimate destiny of becoming a developer. A couple more things. Uh, You have a liberal arts degree from the University of Nebraska. You served on the board of directors for NAOP of Southern Nevada, and you're a member of the Urban Land Institute and SIOR. How's that? That's right on. Awesome. Well, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I know it took you quite a journey to get here today, driving from Arizona. It did. Yeah, I I like to drive. It gives me time to think, but um, it was a little longer than I wanted it to be. Yep. Well, you made it. So those were my words, Jeff. In your own words, tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. Well, I think you have everything... I mean, technically correct, for sure. Um, You know, I have a lot of interests, and I think that that's probably why we do more than one product. Um, Yeah, I started with Hilton in the marketing department, uh, as funny as that sounds, and worked there for a couple years and just realized that, you know, I'm, I'm just not cut out for corporate life. Uh, back then, it was really heavily influenced by the Hilton family. Baron Hilton still made appearances, was still very much a part of the um, culture and the community of the company. But I think I realized quickly, and it took me a little longer to sort of uh, make the switch, um, but I realized quickly that it, it that wasn't going to be for me. But it was a great company. Um, how, how long were you there? I was there for two years. Two years at Hilton. Yeah. And I think it did influence my... Uh, interest and desire in hospitality. It certainly allowed me to hone some skill a little bit in kind of design and kind of customer preferences and kind of the importance of those things. So that was an important, short, but important part of my life. Cool. So professional part um, on the personal side, proud father of two. Yes, I have two young kids. And funniest thing is when people see me with my kids or ask me about my kids, uh, my son's five and my daughter's almost three. Um, the first comment is usually, well, how old are your other kids? <laughs> and I, I don't have any other kids. These are my only kids. So having a ball with them. So became a dad 
fairly recently here. Yeah, it was 48 when I had my son. Wow. Yeah, crazy. Cool. Um, in your bio, it's clear that you at Lapore enjoy complicated projects. Kick us off with a story of a complicated project that you guys did. I got a lot of them. Um, <clears throat> how much time you got? As much as you want. That's the beauty so of, the, I'll, I'll of tell these you things. What, I'll tell you what's interesting is that a project that we have right now, in it's in the Denver MSA, is the most complicated project I've I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen and done a lot of complicated projects, including California Coastal Commission, um, certainly lots of height zoning cases, um, utilities. Just It runs the gamut, and I could give you probably 15 really juicy stories. But this is by far the best story. So <clears throat> we completed a project in Denver. Established a great relationship with the group brokerage group there, and they've put us into another deal that we're working on. But they also were involved, I recalled, on the fringes of a development deal maybe four years ago or so. So I happened to be talking to you know our broker about three four months ago, and I said, "Hey, whatever happened to the deal on 470?" And he's like, "Ah, we finally cleared everything." We're going to capitalize it. We're going to develop it. And um, we couldn't be more excited. I said, perfect. I said, but if anything, you know, comes up or you run into any roadblocks, give me a call. He said, yep, we'll do, but it's looking good. So so they're, in a, they're, they're moving forward with a different developer on that. Yeah. The firm that he was with has both brokerage and development capability. Okay. They're two separate groups, but but they work, you know, in tandem. And the brokerage um, arm also has a development guy on it. And orders from headquarters were, were moving forward with it. Big, you know, national company, regional company, but almost national. And all right. I, listen, I've been around a long time, and I know things change. That's the only thing I know for sure. So 30 days later, I get the call. He's like, hey, I just went to Dallas, and... um Believe it or not, I, I you know we have to cut, we have to cut this deal. And I said, um, "All right, well, what what's the problem?" So he told me what he thought the problem was, and this was maybe back in December. And he said the biggest problem is we have to close in March. I said, "Okay." So took my team out. We did a deep dive. We started in December. We didn't get to the bottom of this until probably the middle of February. We to, didn't to the to the problem. Yes, not what he thought, but what you're now discovering. Right, this is really it. Yeah, we to put the finger on the nerve took you know almost three months, and the group had had it under contract for five years prior. That's a long time. It is a long time. There's there were 19 escrow amendments. When we say now a long deal, two years, three years is a long deal. Uh, on an escrow or yeah, trying to get a building permit. <laughs> I mean, you know, things change. Uh, I'd say a long escrow today, oh, a long escrow might be six months. I mean, if you've got... So, so for context, they're they're going on five years. That's They are, but I'll, I'll tell you in a second why. Okay. So they're five years in, 19 escrow amendments. Obviously, it's yesterday's pricing, clearly. There's been a few bumps along the way, but... So as we got into it, and and we had 
just finished the the project that we just sold at uh, Henderson Airport, which is Air Park Heights, had the same drainage. Um, FEMA 404 Army Corps of Engineers, just dramatic impacts to schedule and timing and cost and and governmental approvals. So as we got into it, we realized like here's the top four problems that that you have or that the project has. So we figured out, I think about three months in, what the four main issues were. But it's all the other issues that are nibbling around the edges on this that that really make it juicy. So one of them is sewer is coming five miles. And there's two other parties downstream that are going to cooperate. And and there's three other parties downstream, so it's a four-party agreement. It's in the process of being put together. It's quasi-governmental, quasi-private. I mean, it's a really complicated. I mean, short of putting the pipe in the ground on lift stations, it's a complicated deal. Um, The second... Uh, issue is that it is adjacent to a historically significant area in Denver. Um, it's by Red Rocks Amphitheater. It's on that sort of side of town. There are there's a dinosaur museum and exhibit, <laughs> and sort of a national park that has dinosaur tracks that have been filled in with concrete so you can see them. Um, the Ute Indian tribe. Uh, had settled in the area, and there's a significant tree that used to be the area where they made all of their compacts with both their allies and their enemies under this particular tree. Um, There's a family that homesteaded the land. In fact, the deed they showed me has Ulysses S. Grant's signature on it. Wow. So they came in the 18-whatever-it-was, Settled 4,000 acres and had 40,000 acres of grazing rights. And now there's a freeway that runs through here, and they're all down. They're down to, like, their last parcel. So there's, like, seven family members. And there's an Army Corps 404 drainage issue that runs through there. What their, does that mean? You said that a, a little bit ago. So that means the Army Corps of Engineers has jurisdiction over the waterway. So when you're rerouting it, improving it, and generally creating a building pad that's no longer in the floodplain, all those approvals come through them. You get them from the cities and the counties too, but that's right. it's a federal uh, okay. approval, which is just code for a super long time of mm-hmm. uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but we've done that's the third. This will be the third one we've done. So we, you know, we have knowledge of 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 how it works, <laughs> and. Then we get into this um, drainage, and we there's a, another entity in Denver that's called Mile High Flood, and they approve all drainage. And their preference there, to be more consistent with the natural surrounding, is that no box culverts, nothing underground. This is open channel. Um, so they have approval rights. And as we get into the county, they are asking us to put an underpass under a new road that we're building for moose. <laughs> so there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot. There's parks and, I mean, there's just so much. There's three different parties that have to give easements for access. They have to dedicate easements. Um, some of them, you know. This is land, I imagine. It is. Some of them, how, how big is this? It's 61 acres. 61 acres of land. About 800,000 feet of industrial. 
Um, the Dinosaur Visitor Center sits on the property. So part of the property that we're buying, we have to dedicate an acre to, to relocate the Dinosaur Visitor Center. And then at some point in the future, we'll get the acre back that they're sitting on currently. Um, so it it has everything. It has grading, too. It has slope. Um, it's probably the, that's yeah. the trickiest one I've seen. I mean, slope is something you would expect. Yeah, I mean, retaining some of the easement stuff high, is yeah. something you would expect. But, yeah. uh Dinosaur tracks molded into the ground. Yeah. Uh, significant tree, historic tree. Mm-hmm. Title issues going back to the 1800s. Family. Dealing, dealing with the Army Corps, family, yeah. and a moose road. Yeah. That's the cherry on top. That is. So how's it going? <laughs> Pretty good, actually. Um, we actually ended up, as we got further into it, what what was perceived to be this hard line in the sand with the seller in March. As we sort of socialized all the current issues, we just renewed the contract for a year. Um, so now we have a year to finish um, and get into a, a situation where we could actually capitalize on it and get a building permit. So the previous development company is regional quasi national how would you define or describe your development company oh i'd we're i mean you're talking about a company uh that has a thousand people um it's it's an institutional it's more of a mainstream down the middle if it's a little too tricky i think we'll pass Mm -hmm. so i'd say it's probably more the norm um they don't have the need for the value add capability, which is how we got into it, or the desire. So I think it's an easy one for them to let go. And so in the in the landscape, there are companies like that, institutional. They have the, the desires and and reasons why they would move forward and reasons why not. And in this instance, they probably got the opportunity because they're institutional, and then they get into it. Now it's it's too complicated. We're going to pass. And now it creates an opportunity for your development company because you will roll up your sleeves. Yeah, I think it's a perfect through all these issues. It's a perfect deal for us because it also has scale. And in this market today, um, I mean, industrial is clearly red hot. It's red hot from a capital standpoint. It's red hot from an absorption standpoint. And there's a new player every single day that shows up with a big pocketbook that wants to get in the business. And most of them want speed to market as quick as they can get in there, especially at this later stage and sort of in the cycle. Thank you for sharing that story. We're going to pick, pick more, pick that up more a little bit later, but I want to rewind a bit and I want you to walk me through your arc from liberal arts. You talked a little bit about Hilton Mm-hmm. Uh, you went from there. Well, I, I'm curious, was it directly into brokerage and then from brokerage to development? Talk, talk us through your path. So I, I I left the corporate world. I was living here at the time. And um, and I went to work at, for um, a sort of th- – this was like 1992-93. Las Vegas was clearly a different place. I mean, CB was here and had um, a really good market share. Lee and Associates was here at the time, but that was about it. Um, I ended up at um, at Prudential with um, a, a group of guys that were really more land centric than anything, and um, so that was my first start. I started there. Um, 
Ken Gregson actually owned the um, the brokerage firm at the time with a couple other guys. I think Howard Bullock and a few other kind of older names from from way back. So I, I spent a few years there, and then I sort of narrowed it down to industrial, and I went to Industrial Property Group, which was uh, went to work with Dean Wilmore and Steve Gilmore. So I w- I worked at IPG. It was Prudential IPG when I went there, but not I'm assuming not the same Prudential as Ken Gregson had. No, this was. Prudential Southwest Realty. Okay. And I think that after I left, they took on maybe one or two more sort of iterations. And then I remember seeing when Prudential and IPG, I think Prudential bought IPG. Is that right? It was uh, Jim Jim Riggs. Do you remember that name? So he did um, office condo development here and in Arizona where he was based. He had Shea Commercial, which is like an in-house brokerage to sell his office condos. He bought the Prudential name, I think, from Mark Stark at the time, who was Prudential Americana. Okay. So he sold the Prudential commercial piece to Jim Riggs, and then Jim acquired IPG from Dean. Got it. So I was there at that iteration of it, and I remember in the conference room, there was the the plaque where they had the top producers, and your your name was on at least one of the years. Yeah, I'm sure that had to be 95-ish. 96-ish, somewhere in there. Yeah, a long time ago. I was there 2008, I want to say. I was there for a couple of years. Yeah, we had a good group there. Javier Waziak was His there. His name was on the plaque. We were partners um, for a while. Jam- a guy named James Hahn was there. Okay. Um, that was a good group of guys. So then, did you go directly from IPG into development? Um, sort of. Uh, I put together a deal with Steve Gilmore, and we that was my first sort of like entry into the business. He was a developer. That was his core business. Yeah. And we did about 110,000 feet of industrial at Sandhill and Post. So east of McCarran. Mm-hmm. It was called uh, Sandhill Airport Park, three buildings. Um, we had a lo- local guy. Your marketing experience with Hilton helped you with that name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, and we developed it and uh, and I subsequently sold my interest. In. And during that time frame... Um, I met a guy named Lewis Shaw, which was um, the president of a company called Jackson Shaw. And we got friendly over maybe a year period of time. And he's like, hey, why don't you um, come over and and um, and basically um, for for no pay, um, we'll give you a piece of the, the deal and you sort of oversee what we've already started and find some new stuff for us to do. So I did that. I stayed there for you know, maybe about five years, give or take. And we did a lot. We did a lot in Arizona. That's what took me to the Phoenix market. Uh, we did a good amount here. And um, and then once we sort of grouped it all together and sold it off, I took my share of that and started my own company. So that's what got me started is that I, I, I had some capital from those from that event. And the experience. No question. Five years of no pay is awesome. Well, it didn't turn out to be no pay. I, know, but, I get but it. But no, no guarantee is what I should yeah. say. Um, it's, that's it, very, very interesting to me. I talk to a lot of agents, both existing and new agents. And inevitably, there's, there's some form of this expression from them. I want to get into commercial real estate because I want to be a developer. And I mean, I walked you around our building. Mm-hmm. We developed this building. We we acted as the developer for this building. 
I have some other ancillary development exposure. I know what I know about development through NAOP and Developing Leaders Institute, which we'll talk about. Being a commercial real estate broker, third-party brokerage is a completely different day-to-day, from my understanding, as being a developer. No question. I mean, there's there's no question. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, hey, is it, you know, is brokerage a good business? I think personally brokerage is a great business. Um, one of the greatest things about it, I know brokers feel like things take a long time, but it's a much shorter path to being compensated than it is as, as a developer. Um, and it's a great business because you get to meet people from all over every industry. Occasionally you get to see their financials to see what kind of businesses really are making money and what kind of businesses aren't. And there's a lot of both, uh, in the world. And it's just, I think it's interesting. And I think development is I mean, the, depends on how you practice it, but it's it's a complicated business. It just is no matter how you look at it. And there's a good amount of risk there, too. Well, push pause on this for a second, but we're going to come back to it. Uh, this show is called Takeaways, and I started this so I can have conversations with people like you who I've had takeaways from and have influenced me. So I want to ask you, what has been the single biggest influence in your life that shaped you the most? Oh, man. <clears throat> I can only pick one? To start with, if you want to riff on some more later, you can. Um, I, I would say the use of a mentor, probably, is the single biggest thing that has enabled me to be successful in this business. Um, you know, I was very interested in development when I got into it. I became a student. Like, I love to read, and I love to learn, and I like to learn every single day if I can. And I usually do learn something. And there's several days that I wished I didn't learn some of it. But um, but I would say the use of a mentor, and I've had a few, um, mostly older guys, quite a bit older than me, that have really probably cut 25 years off the learning curve. And I think that... It's probably the single most valuable thing that I utilized. And I kind of did it by accident just because I'm naturally curious. And, you know, I found a couple like-minded guys that um, that were, you know, old enough um, that they were willing to share and maybe didn't feel competitive or, or threatened um, and had a great deal of knowledge and both were, were really, you know, good teachers. Did you decide like consciously proactively I need to get a mentor and I'm going to gra- I gravitate to this person and I I'm going to ask them to be my mentor. How did it how did it come to fruition for you? No, I didn't do that. I you know, I was I I again, I love to learn. I'm always hungry and thirsty for knowledge and I think that I, you know, and I'm a digger too. So I think, you know, I would just be always digging for information and when I would find a source, I would be relentless and it just sort of morphed into a you know, a friendship and a mentoring relationship. Can you talk about the first one or two mentors? Sure. Yeah. Well, Lewis Shaw is one of them. Um, and I, you know, was sort of, I had the luck of sort of being at his elbow when I was a young guy. And, um, I think one of the biggest benefits is that 
I went to every meeting and saw everything exactly the way it was, no matter where it was at. I was 25 years old or whatever at the time. And, and, and I would say that the other mentor that I had is a guy named Henry Kronberg, who just passed away maybe a year ago at 101. He's, um, wow. Yeah. Remarkable guy. Tell us about Henry. Uh, Henry actually was the first person that I met um, that actually invested some capital with me and um, and Steve Gilmore at the time. He owned a business downtown called Stoney's Pawn Shop, which, you know, the old timers will remember that name because it was kind of catchy, but been here forever and ever. Holocaust survivor, moved here 1962, give or take, um, and became a land investor. And really built a beautiful life for himself. Uh, just a great person, just very knowledgeable, um, you know, tough guy when he needed to be, just just a really special guy. It sounds like he may have mentored you more on things not development related. For sure. I mean, business, relationships, human nature. I mean, yeah, of course. And, and yeah. Lewis maybe gave you... More, more the direct development mentorship. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because he's, you know, he's an unusual guy, too. He, you know, he's a, you know, definitely not a mainstream guy, you know, thinks outside the box for sure. And, um, and, I, and I made the most of it with both of the guys. Great segue into the next section, which is the takeaway section and things that I have learned from you. You and I met in DLI. I've talked a lot about DLI, yeah. but there's an association called NAOP, which is the association for the commercial real estate development community. And they had the brilliant idea of creating this institute, Developing Leaders Institute. It's for people who are 35 and under, a 12-month curriculum taught by people just like you. Yeah. And the curriculum is, here's the development process, A to Z. And the class that you taught is titled... The whole class is taught market analysis and site selection. I think John Restrepo did the first half, the market analysis. And I you, love John, you, by the way. Yeah, we all love John. There's it's only fun. one John Restrepo. Yeah. Uh, you you dovetail market analysis with, with site selection. And we sort of went around the edges on this next question, but I want you to a answer it more directly. What is it that a developer actually does? Well, the obvious part of of the equation is that you identify a need in the market, real estate related, and you bring the team together and marshal the resources and coordinate and conduct um, the design, the financing, the construction, the leasing, the marketing, and either the ultimate ownership or sale of the final product. Um, but I, I would say that really as a developer, measuring risk is probably at that top, top, top of the list. And, you know, being confident enough to act on something. Because there's a lot of really smart people um, in the world that are in various stages of real estate that, you know, maybe would like to be in development but aren't or the smartest ones probably never want to be in development for a reason. Uh, but I think, you know, it's not just, it's just not good enough 
to just have the idea. You have to act on it. And I think that separates a lot of people. It's not easy going to someone like a Henry and saying, hey, I've got, I've identified the need in the marketplace. I've got an idea for the, for the project. Put up some money. Unless you're a believer. And I was always a believer. And then getting to a point where you're putting up your own money, I yeah, imagine. For sure. Yeah. I'd rather put up my own money, honestly. Why? Um, it's a cleaner, easier process. You know, unfortunately, the real estate market is so big that it, you know, money doesn't go that far. So you, you know, certainly have to leverage. But um, you, you got to be a believer. You know, you got to you got to be behind your idea. Nobody nobody can convince you to be a believer yourself, right? Mm -hmm. You're either gonna take the steps and believe it, or you're not. And I think that once you have that, the rest just you know sort of comes together in that class you shared something that it sounds so i'm going to say it, it sounds so simple but it never left me since that class i think i was in a class 2009 10 i want to say so it was, i was the second class okay so if it was <clears> nine <throat> or ten man it was tough times it was tough times i was a young broker yeah. i didn't know there was you know fleeting moments and thoughts where i was like is this an act is this a career a viable <laughs> career for me <laughs> Well, the good news is it was probably only up from there. So Jared and I partnered up together in 2007, yeah. which was not the worst time to partner. It, 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 people, I tell that to people, and they're like, well, it wasn't the recession, so it wasn't the worst time. It was, I think it was the worst time because it was peaking. It was either at peak or peaking. Yeah, so right. we were like, we're going to do this, and we had a false sense of hope that we're going we're gonna to make it. Yeah. And then we just wrote it straight down to the trough. In retrospect, you know, people like Susie Jones, Walker, who taught CCIM, yeah. and a few others said, if you can make it in a market like this, you're going to make it when times are good. And then Brad Schneff gave us advice once and said, you need to burn holes in the soles of your shoes. Well, what does that mean? Get out of your office and go walk some buildings. Walk inside of suites. Go talk to people. There was three-year period of my career, the first three years, where there was no messages on my phone ever from people that left me a message, hey, Haim, I want to do business with you. It was right. always outbound, outbound, outbound. Right. And yeah, it's. I think it has served us well, you know, fast forward and, and seeing where the market is. The thing that you shared was there's, there's two types of, I think, projects. There's a site looking for a use yeah. or a use looking for a site. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was like... Um, and they talk about now I'm forgetting the coach's name, Lombardo, that that starts every football season with this is a football. Yeah. So, so you know, the yeah. team's been playing for however many years. Like, no, this is a football. Yeah. Use looking for a site or site looking for a use. Why is that significant? Uh, I think it depends on like what angle you're coming from. I think most of our business is a use looking for a site. So when we go and look, whether it's Colorado, Arizona, Nevada, or any other place, um, you know, we've usually sort of at least desktop underwritten the market and know what we're looking for. We have a saying in my office, too, we know it when we see it. And that's generally the path we take. Um, but I do have a site that we um, have owned for a really long time, left over from the last cycle in Phoenix that's... Um, that was farmland that I thought, you know, given the depth of the recession and given just how long the recovery was, my thought was, hey, this is going to be 
this is going to be out there. And, you know, industrial's gotten so much momentum now that it's just like a wildfire through the 303 corridor and our site's in the middle of it. And we had gotten a lot of calls. Do you want to sell? I don't think we want to sell. We're just going to kind of sit. And now um, we have like the hole in the donut. And we thought, well, should we build a building? Maybe it's not a big site. It's 10 acres. Should we build a 125, 130,000 square foot building? But now it looks like we're, you know, we're at the doorstep of a ground lease with a user. Which ground leasing industrial in Phoenix, I don't know there's a lot of them. But it just shows you how. I don't know that there's a lot. I mean, we think about ground changed. leases. It's like a McDonald's is ground leasing yeah. for 20 years. Well, this is a freeway front site, which probably has something to do with that. Who's asking? Are they asking to ground lease? Or are you saying? No, they asked me. First, they wanted to buy it. Then they asked me to do a build the suit. And it's a big national company. And, you know, build the suits for those groups are really time consuming. And we just thought, hey, it's better for both of us if you just do a ground lease. And they build their own building. Yeah. Yeah, we're in the process right now. So that was more of a, that was a site looking for use and the use mm-hmm. showed up. Uh, but most of the time, we're we're use looking for. So a site. say that again. That was a site looking. Well, for Well, from your perspective, you have a site looking for a use. A use showed up from their perspective. They're the use, right? And they're Two looking for a coin. site, and you're the donut hole in the middle of the right the area. It was so, I don't, you know, your class was like a. It's a three hour class that we sit through, and it's like that one thing, that one concept, always just stuck with me. If you can get one thing out of everything you go to. Just one. I mean, people have unrealistic expectation. They want, they want ten magic silver bullets all the time, right? Doesn't work that way. And ten magic silver bullets, not are not all of them are actionable, right? Right. There's not. I don't. I mean, I tell this to young people all the time. I don't even. Is there a silver bullet out there? I never found it. I don't think there is for anything. Put the time in. Yep. So we talked about the Great Recession. I brought it up. You brought it up. Yeah. Uh, you shared a story once where you're a developer in the Great Recession. You've got active developments happening. I'm a young broker just starting. Yeah. So different different phases in our career, different issues that each of us are facing. But you're facing uh, – the way that you shared the story is you know, it's, you've got developments. I don't know if it was all over how many open active developments that you had, but – it's like you woke up one morning and there's all these problems that you didn't anticipate. And then the mm-hmm. next morning there were more problems. And then the next morning, it's all of a sudden you re- you found yourself in a place where there are more problems than you even, first of all, anticipated, second, can deal with. And now you're like, there's more coming. I remember it well, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing. Maybe we can jump more in there. But then yeah. the, the way that you continued the story was specifically around the office building that you built here in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. It's on the 215 right around Russell. Yep. I think you just delivered it maybe. you just you just September, fi- just right after Lehman Brothers failed, we delivered it. <laughs> Perfect timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were negotiating with our architecture firm that they were going to be a tenant, a major tenant. You had a good memory. This. I, I listen to stuff like yeah, this. Yeah. These are my takeaways from Jeff. It is, yeah. And um, ongoing negotiations, the back and forth. And it's like you don't know if they even want the deal, if they're going to do the deal. But your broker called and said, all right, I think we can do the deal. I think they were like, if they want seven months of free rent or something. And you you said, if I give them seven months, will they sign the deal? And the broker was confident, yes. And you said, give them nine and, and sign it now. Something to that effect. Mm-hmm. 
So fill in fill in the blanks there. What did I miss? It, it wasn't quite like that. But All right. <clears throat> so the office building, like back in those days, the average office building that somebody besides Howard Hughes would build, and even Hughes built some of these, but like Thomas and Mac, EJM, me, um, even the buildings at Central Point, they were like 70,000 feet, three stories, give or take. Maybe it's a 60, maybe it's a 75. But that was about the average building that was being built. We delivered a three-story, 70,000-square-foot building. And at the time, it was a little closer to Summerlin than it was 15. But it was the first LEED-certified suburban office. Mulaski had their deal done downtown, but we were the first LEED in the suburbs. And back then, LEED was anticipated to have value by tenants. But when there aren't any tenants around, it's hard to prove up value. And we had started that building before we knew. I mean, we clearly were away pretty far along when things went from sort of calm to difficult to bad to worse. And I was in New York in March of 08. And I was at a hotel capital markets deal. And that's the first sort of... Like, I'd watched housing a little bit, but nobody was really that nervous. And then that's when I first thought, man, we we're gonna, we could have a problem here. I mean, there were 40,000 new rooms in the pipeline. Remember all the high-rise um, that was going on, Turnberry, all these related was here. Everybody was here. It was bid this up, bid this up, flip this, flip that. And one of the guys from HVS spoke, and, and he's like, has a pulls up his slide he's got a red line through like las vegas and a few other markets and i'm like ah you know you see hbs that. is a lender <clears throat> no it's a what market study firm out of okay. denver it's one of the top hospitality groups and you always hear an economist with an opinion and my experience is they're rarely ever right no matter what they say um it's so why i took it with a grain of salt but i was like yeah this doesn't feel that good and then around April, it started to get a little, things were getting kind of like some of the lenders, I had some maturities coming up and things were getting a little like, it wasn't going to be a rubber stamp. And then by, like I woke up June 6, 2008, and I knew right then that we were going to have a problem. But it wasn't until like the first quarter of 09 that I actually had a problem. What happened in June that signaled to you there's going to be a problem? I was trying to get some financing, some hotel financing. <clears throat> we had significant capital outlaid already on these projects, you know, not partner money. And it just was stacking up, stacking up. Leasing was sort of, you know, waning. The housing market was really starting to be a public issue. And then as Lehman and these groups started to get under scrutiny, it just all came together kind of one day. But nothing actually happened until like 09. And then it really got tough. So there you are in September negotiating mm -hmm. this lease with this architecture so, firm. So, And you knew, you had a sense, okay, this is going to get bad. If I don't well, sign now. I'll tell you this. Yeah. I had, I was taking 6,000 square feet in the building. For your company. Uh-huh. And it was framed and drywalled and, and mechanical was in there. And I met the architecture firm there, and we toured the space. And they're like, geez, we really like the third floor, but there's already a tenant there. 
I said, I think you could probably, I think that could be blended into the space. And did so, they know it was your company? That yeah. was okay. Yeah. So we talked about it for a few minutes. I walked out of the meeting. I called the contractor and said, just pull all your guys off that space. Like right now. And I don't have a time when you can go back, just sit tight. So we go back and forth for like a month and a half. And, and you know, the, the, the guys knew, I think that clearly it was a tenant market already, although there wasn't like a huge, um, like red light blinking that, Hey, this building's in distress because it was brand new and we had some time to run on it. So, we got into the negotiation and, and, you know, they were beating us up and beating us up and beating us up. And, and, um, and I think we had offered six months free on a 10 year deal or something. And they came back and said they wanted 12 or 13 months. And I was driving in a car in California when I was talking to our broker and I said, you know, what's it going to take to get this thing done? And he's like, well, I think, you know, They'd probably settle like nine or ten months, I'm guessing. They were repped by a broker of their own. And I said, I don't care if you give them nine or ten. You decide which one you think because at this point it doesn't matter. And I think we gave them nine. And they signed the deal. And about two years after that, my broker was Mike DeLue at the time. And it's a good friend of mine, does a lot of our stuff. He's like, man, I thought that was like really a crazy number. That you were giving away the farm, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're crazy for agreeing to this. That's what he thought. Well, he didn't go that far, but he's like, hey, yeah, this yeah. is like a really like. You're being generous. Yeah. Like overly, maybe overly generous yeah. on what you needed to be for the market. But I'll tell you, like, I learned a long time ago. I don't like empty buildings. When I first finish a project and you can see all the way through it, still to this day, it like, I don't like it. And I knew my only shot on that building was to get some occupancy. I needed something. And here I had a full floor deal, which isn't that common. Wasn't that common then. That was a big tenant for this market. And I had to agree to exclusive signage. I mean, they got everything that they wanted. And I agonized a little bit over it while we were negotiating the lease. But I thought, you know what? It might not matter. Let's just see how the story ends. Meaning if you don't agree, you might lose the building anyway. Yeah. Because of all the stuff that you noticed. Yeah. So, you know, I, I normally don't peck away at a deal either. I, I like to stick with, hey, what's life or death? I'm not trying to make a good deal better ever. If you do, you can't really do any volume. Because you just get tangled up on these little nuances that don't really, really matter that much. So I got them. And when they moved in, it really, I think, set the tone for the building. And shortly after that, we got a state agency, Public Utility Commission of Nevada. And we got them because, number one, they had a need for space. And number two, we were LEED certified. And they had a um, like a requirement as a state agency to be in a LEED building. And we made a fair deal with them, too. And then when they came and took the second floor... It brought um, Envy Energy because they needed an office close by. And then we backfilled the rest of the space. Crown Casinos took part of it. Um, Backfilled the rest of it. Moved it to a mini perm and then sold it. Um, And we actually made a little bit of money. Congratulations. Yeah. 
yeah. that one worked out all yeah. all over one or two months. Well, yeah. When you oversimplify the story. Yeah, sure. Uh, as an aside, where do you think we are present day as far as these signals? I've I've seen some signals is why I'm asking. I was at okay. a, a event at our park, our neighborhood park, and one of our neighbors is a residential broker with like in one of these shops with like 500 agents. And this is a, a little bit ago now, a few weeks ago, he said, mm-hmm. you know, interest rates are rising and we had three escrows fall out because the borrowers are expecting this mortgage per month. And now with interest rates going up, it's a little bit more. So three escrows have fallen out Hmm. and we know interest rates are rising. We have inflation, which we've not experienced. And I mean, I, I know about inflation because my parents talked about it before I was born right in America. Inflation was going crazy. I think it was the late seventies. We have not experienced inflation like this, but it's certainly here. There's geopolitical issues with Russia and Ukraine and, and, China's always an issue, but Biden's talking about we'll come to Taiwan's defense if we need to. Uh, so interest rates, uh, inflation, geopolitics, are these the kinds of signals that make you kind of sit back on your heels a bit or no for development? Yeah, I, I, I mean, you always have to be aware. I mean, there's so many things. There's so many things out there. I mean, is there ever a time when there's not? Three out of those five that you just listed, probably not. I mean, this different one is the inflation for sure. But I look back when I I remember when I was in seventh grade, my parents bought a house and the mortgage was at nine and three quarters, and they were ecstatic with it. They thought this was a great number, and so I think that's perspective. It is, yeah. and I think a lot of it's relative. I mean, you're going to have a two or three percent interest rate. I mean, come on, that's not reasonable. I do think where you have to be careful is that. When you have the pricing and you have inflation where it's at, and now you've got this inflated cost, and you've got this big basis where you've got now rates climbing too, both those together are clearly dangerous, right? Especially when you have cap rates and things that have been compressed to where they're at today. I mean, I'm hearing, I heard from an industrial broker last week, he thought a deal was going to trade at a 2.9 cap for multi-tenant industrial. (laughs) Why is that absurd? How close to zero can you go? I mean... Meaning whoever's buying it is really making no return. I would say no return, and it's not a triple net big Amazon deal. And, mm-hmm. you know, by the way, they're giving back a lot of space, too. Which and that's think, another signal in present day. Which I think has startled some people, because what I've seen in industrial is that the Amazon effect of all these retailers moving to um, to e-commerce industrial... That's been happening for sure. I mean, you just look at the absorption numbers. You just look at the types of tenants, the size of the companies, and the size of the buildings today. They're huge. And I'll tell you a quick story about a guy in Phoenix that had a deal 25 years ago that I asked him about yesterday. Um, And I think, but what happened with industrial is that, like, even the mid-bay product rose up with the Amazon effect, even though it's not really connected to e-commerce, right? The smaller divisibility. Like the rates rose up. The, yeah, everything. The cap rates rose up. Everything. Yeah. Um, nothing lasts forever. And I think we've had a really great swing up. I think you just have to be careful about levels of in the pipeline. That's what I'm looking at mostly. What does that mean? Um how much space is proposed or under construction. To me, 
that's a big measure. I mean, you got to look at absorption too, but absorption can shut off like that, right? You can't shut off construction. Absorption being demand. Correct. Um, and when you see markets that, you know, have 15% of their base is under construction, you know, those are big numbers. Walk through the math on that. So in, in Las Vegas, how much industrial square footage is there? So let's just say there's 150 million. There might and be that's the base. 180, yeah. And if you have 20 million, you know, 20 million feet in the pipeline proposed or under construction, that's a lot of space. As a, from a, a percentage of, <clears throat> of the base. Yeah. Meaning that all of this is moving. You said that the, the construction, the, um, the development can't be turned off like a light switch. Correct. So it's, you're, you're making commitments two years, three years in advance on a site. You're putting money into it. You're, you're getting construction crews out there. And all of a sudden, Amazon decides... Oops, we're overbuilt. They pull back. Uh, the people that they've been uh, driving demand with, they pull back. Maybe some geopolitical issue pulls back another industry. So demand demand does shut off. Well, I don't think it's going to shut off. I know. This I mean, is a scenario you're yeah. mitigating. You talked about mitigating risk. Yeah. <clears throat> I think certainly, you know, eventually it's going to slow down. It's been a great run for a lot of markets, including Las Vegas. Um but, you know, building prices have doubled. Uh, there's been a really big run-up. But I think that the majority of the product is in the hands of an institution. There's very few private owners left. And institutions, you know, have the ability to, they'll hold something for five or ten. Yeah, it might not get the yield they wanted, but it's not a collapse. It Maybe it's a lower return than they thought. Um, so I think... The ownership stock of this stuff is much different than it's ever been, which is a lot more stable. But there's a big pipeline. And for me, what counts for me is I need to have an advantage of some kind, right? I can't just show up and say I'm going to compete with the top five institutions because they can close tomorrow with on a large deal and place the capital, etc. And even if I partner with an institution, which we're doing in some places, um, you know, you're in this business to make a, a return and you don't necessarily want to be in something, you know, 10 years later if you have a slowdown. I think it's hard to get an advantage today. It's more get in line with how quick can you try to get it out. I, I sold a project in, in the city of Mesa that we entitled and had full intentions on building, had capital raised for it, or at least we were able to strike if we wanted to. Because roof joists, lead time on the materials and whatnot would have put me out a year plus. And my whole advantage has always been be an early mover or find a site that's tough that's in a low vacant market. And I lost my early mover ability because hmm. lead times for materials just equalized everybody. So you have the discipline to recognize you lost your advantage. So instead of moving forward with a development, now you're selling the site. We already sold it and, yeah. and, um, and, you know, did phenomenally on it. But, you know, there's been 10 more deals announced right around it. There's 20 million square feet in the pipeline. You know, there's eventually it's going to slow down. Tell me about the guy in Phoenix, about the deal 25 years ago. Oh, I remember this, the, the, a guy's name's Tom Roberts. He used to run Opus. And when I first got to Phoenix, they had announced this huge building on the west side. Industrial? Yep. Cross dock. And I thought, God, 
that's the biggest building I think I've ever heard of. And, um, and I saw him about two weeks ago. And I said, hey, Tom, remember that deal the Bose headphones leased from you guys? I said, that deal was huge. I said, how big was that building? Was that like a 750 or a million square feet? He goes, no, it was a 250. 250,000 yeah. square feet. Yeah. To show you where buildings have gone today. So 25 years ago, this is the, the biggest thing you've ever heard of. And yeah. the way you remembered it was it's a 750,000 In my mind, building. this thing right. was a million feet. And Tom says, nope. Mm-hmm. It was a 250. Crazy. Yeah. I've got like six things that I've heard you share or learn from you over the years. I'll okay. tell you what they are. You can comment on them. How about that? Perfect. It's always great to follow a failure. Yeah. Um, I have learned way more from failing than I ever did from being successful. You know, and sometimes you get confused when you have success, too. You're not sure why. I mean, you know that this went well, that went well, especially when you're younger. And you're like, and then you duplicate it and it doesn't go as well the second time, right? I think that um, I've probably had the best projects after I've had an opportunity to learn. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice way to say it. Yeah. Architecture design, architectural design suffers in Las Vegas because of land cost. I think that's partially true. Yeah. I mean, Silicon Valley, I think, has some of that. You know, Southern California used to have it before the municipalities got tough. Um, but, you know, when you're paying so much for a site, there's only so much you can do in the project. I mean, I think housing is the best example of that. Um, they're filling a need. Yeah. Um, they're making it cost effective for people to buy it. But definitely, I think that the planning and the aesthetics have suffered as a result. It just occurred to me that you might have said these things in like a time and place context that I'm asking you about it now. Yeah. Um, Why is architectural design, in a way, it's not important because we're building houses with no regard for architectural design and people are living there just fine. Or are we just, are we missing the point? How can it be important? Well... You know, I got, like, involved in a restaurant here, Dom DeMarco's, obviously, during the downturn. We did the interior design and helped with the concepting and stuff. It was a fun thing to do to get the mind off of, um, you know, the markets. And it was a niche for that at the time and still involved in it. And the one thing I learned there is that it's just as easy to make food that's good as it is to make food that doesn't taste good. It's not that hard to have a attractive or stylish design of some kind. You don't have to always spend a lot of money. You do have to care, though. And you do have to want to put a little bit of time into it. And I think that the speed and the sort of the corporate aspect of a lot of this stuff is just let some of that go by the wayside. And to your point, they don't have to. There's still demand for it. When architectural design goes right in a building, mm-hmm. what are the byproducts of that? Well, I would say that the office building that I built that we just talked about a few minutes ago, it was one of the saving graces of the building. Because when when the market's red hot, yeah, space is going to go, right? It's when things get tough and people have lots of options and now they have a preference for something and they can actually pick you know, pride of ownership over it. I think you're going to win it. 
And I always try to prepare for, we never get like super comfortable and say, yeah, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. We always try. We always try to make the best of what we've got from a design standpoint, because I feel like, hey, this is a cyclical business and you might as well be prepared for the worst. And I actually think that there's a rental premium associated with it. And, you know, it's hard to prove it, but there may be a cap rate to it too. Another one you said I didn't write down, but people, I think it was like people pay for new. Yes. So is that people pay for new construction? People pay for new construction. We just had this. I have this conversation constantly with people. Narrative office building, right? <clears throat> when have you ever seen a project that pre leased from dirt, office space, brand new, in a pandemic after it already had a start once and then stopped construction? So we're talking about a project that you have under. <clears throat> Development right now. Mm-hmm. How many square feet is the whole building? It's 102-ish, give or take. Four 102,000 square foot, yeah. four-story office building. Now, why it's significant is because ever since I've been in this industry, the term pre-leasing and office just don't go together. Right. Especially in this market when we had the, the run-up to the great boom. We were like ground zero for America in the global great recession around real estate. Right. And people gave deposits on condos that never came out of the ground. So there's this... I don't know if it's scar tissue or it's just within our DNA in Las Vegas that pre-leasing, we don't do pre-leasing. And now office in particular, like different than industrial where there's money to build a building on spec, there's no money out there from any lender, generally speaking, to build office building on spec. You have to have some amount of pre-leasing to prove that there's demand. That's true. And so you're building a building now. You had a false start in a way. Mm-hmm. Is that how you framed it? Yeah, we built the pad, um, did all the utilities, and COVID hit. So, And now in COVID, it's like no one's ever going back to the office. Well, we'll work never, from home forever. I never believed that. That was the headline on every... It still is. Depends on where you... True. On where you read. But I never believed that. But I did say to myself, it, 08 doesn't seem that long ago. I'm not going to have... There's no advantage to us right here, right now, to continue the building until we get some clarity of where this is all headed. So you're, you've you've spun up everything we've talked about and what goes into developing a building. You have um, tenants committed that have pre-leased, and now you're pushing the pause button. Right. And I think I would have done the same thing with the same information at the same time. I'd do it over. But I'll tell you this, is that there's so many arguments about, geez, how could office sell for this? How could office sell for that? If you want new construction, (laughs) and I say this to to Frank Moretti a lot, new construction costs what new construction costs. Nobody in this business is out there getting a bigger margin than the next guy. Everybody's probably about the same is my guess. So it's not like you're going to go next door and get a discount for a brand new building. You're not. You're not going to go to downtown Summerlin. You're not going to go to um, any of the stuff that's on the Beltway and get a discount one building over the next. You might get a few extra TI dollars, this, that, or the other thing. You know, market nuance type stuff. Mm-hmm. And and we've seen some really great companies um, that have landed in these buildings that people said were too expensive. But they're not. 
And they're not too expensive, especially relative to what they're paying in other parts of the country. It's just that Las Vegas never really had like mm. a traditional office market. Just hasn't never had. One. That makes sense. We don't know. Uh, yeah. There's not always more inventory coming out of the ground. You build a building in 2008. Nothing gets built for, I don't know how many years it was, 12? 12. S- since that building. Yeah. And now we're finally starting to see not just one, but like a handful of new office developments. But you see the guys doing the office are people that are deep local. Because you can't look at a market report and make a case. If you're just going off a desktop underwriting for office, you can't make a case to build office in Las Vegas. But if you know the market, you know there's demand. And after after we're all, everybody's had some success, there'll be more financing and equity loosening and, you know. Yeah, we're maturing and yeah. also. So there's de- just de- not much land left. Desktop underwriting. So yeah. you and I were on the board together for NAOP. We were at Mount Charleston for the retreat. Yeah. And after some sessions, we all go outside and we're all sitting around a table. We start talking. And you shared a story about as you as things have become more sophisticated for you and your company and projects mm-hmm. that you're doing, you have a way of underwriting. It's a very basic mathematical formula, yeah. and you get laughed at from the MBAs sitting across from you, maybe with your with your institutional partners, because they've got sophisticated spreadsheet analyses. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the takeaways. Talk about your <clears throat> your desktop underwriting. Well, why, why it works? I mean, listen, I'm not an advocate that that's that that's yeah. um, the way that people should be doing it. That's probably more the old timers way of doing it um i know i've talked to rod martin about it he he and i probably underwrite the same way um you know the older um guys probably do but there's definitely a need for sophisticated you know analysis but what we're always looking for is rough order of magnitude because these projects don't need to you don't need to split hairs with this stuff I mean, it's never an exact science, right? And you have a lot of moving parts, and hopefully you have a tailwind, not a headwind. Because, uh, you you know, obviously you have to build for tomorrow. You can't build based on yesterday. Just you'll, the math doesn't work. And I think um, I like simplicity. And I think that anybody that either works with me or, or knows me knows that we keep it as simple as humanly possible. But we also have courage and conviction when we get behind something. And we're not looking to be validated by, I mean, sure, we got to get it financed. Yeah, we have to get an equity partner and in the cases that we can't do it. Um, but we're not necessarily, you know, looking for um, a time bomb in reams of spreadsheets right just doesn't work that way and if it works under a certain set of circumstances it's going to work under every set of circumstances and that's how we do it you know it when you see it right i'll share a story with you yeah so i'm in um phoenix for a conference and one of the things we do we're an independent company as it relates to the commercial real estate landscape mm-hmm. there's nationals there's independents. <clears throat> you go to a national because 
there's promise of deal. You go for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is there's promise of deal flow from the quote unquote network. Yeah. Being an independent, I create my own network and I go and visit offices when I'm in other markets of companies that are not in Las Vegas, but ultimately might have a requirement here and refer you business and, and refer us business. Yeah. So one of these mark, one of these on one of these visits, I go and visit the trans Western office in Phoenix. Okay. Good guys. I've done business with a lot of those guys and they told me. Yeah. So we start talking shop okay. and we mentioned some people in the market and mm. Jeff Lapore comes up. Yeah. Your name comes up. Yeah. And he's oh, Jeff, love Jeff. Jeff's so awesome. We love Jeff. And they tell me this, this story. I don't have all of the details. I Probably want you to Jim fill in. He wasn't in the room, but yeah, he was related to it. He's, they're yeah. like, all right, here's, here's the setup of the story. Okay. So they're in control of a site as yeah. far as I've gathered. And it's the, one of the best sites I've ever had a, privilege of being a part of 28th and, street and camelback and um they have developers interviewing them or they're interviewing developers yeah that's right typically it's like in uh, developers are interviewing broke but they get to interview developers and decide which developer do we want to give the keys to the kingdom on this site and they're like we've got this group coming in and that group everyone one after another and they come and spend uh powerpoint presentations and they're all they're all doing the dance <laughs> One group after another, one group after another, yeah. and then in comes Jeff. Yeah, and we're like, Jeff. Jeff comes in. Chad, good to meet you. Sits down, puts his phone on the table, looks at us. What do you guys want to talk about? And there, love it. So fill in the details on that. So <clears throat> that was a really interesting deal, and I think what what's great about it, I think, in hindsight, is that. The the seller of the site um, had owned it for a long time, and and I and I think I've said this to him. So if he listens, this is not going to be a surprise. He's the most difficult guy I've ever dealt with <laughs> in my entire life, and I've I haven't met anybody like him since either. And I'll tell you a quick story about it. Is that um, the site came out of three point seven acres. And um, at a signalized intersection, 28th Street and Camelback, which is the best, some of the best real estate in Arizona. It, had, it was occupied by a story and a half um, office buildings. Now, I've been going to Phoenix for 20 years at this point. I know there's demand for select serve hotel. I've been looking for a site on and off just in my travels for 20 years. What's when, an example of select serve hotel? Um, well, upper select serve like AC Marriott, which is what I end up building on that site. Okay, and there hasn't there hadn't been any new construction in that product type in that market for thirty years. Just it's ground zero for office. Twenty fourth and Camelback is where every major company, I mean Tempe and all these other markets are great now today, but at the time, and they're calling me, hey, you should make an offer. You should make an offer, and I'm like. Learning about the site, um, they have right on their brochure approved for fifty six feet. And I said they, and they're calling me. Yeah, I called them first, obviously, and I'd known Jim a little bit around the perimeter. Um, and finally, I was like, "All right, I, I knew enough that entitlements were difficult there, and I knew enough that the site was expensive. You know, three eight, three and a half acres. We ultimately ended up buying it for seventeen and a half million dollars, which I think at the time gave a stomach ache to the local guys. 
even though they were all very great companies that have had a lot of success in that market. Why a stomach ache in what way? They couldn't get over history, which oftentimes happens in this business where a guy says that site's never going to be worth that. And then one day it is, right? I think that was the impediment for folks. Plus it was 2015 and there was, you know, the market wasn't exactly on fire at the time. So I said, um, I, I, I'll make an offer, but I have to meet uh, the guy's name's Jerry. I have to meet Jerry first. Well, Jerry's busy, and I said, oh, I'm busy too. Um, but you let me know when time's good, and, and I'll make it. So they call me and said, hey, we're going to meet at Jerry's house. I said, okay. So I go to Jerry's house, and you know, we go in and we're talking. And he's um, and the broker had told me the site was probably going to sell for around 15, 15, 5. So he's uh, telling me how great the property is. He said, you know, this thing's probably worth at least 17. Jerry's saying this or yeah. the broker? No, Jerry. Jerry, okay. Broker's quiet. This goes on for like 30, 40 minutes. He goes from 17 to 19 to 20 to 22. And we're going back and forth. I mean, it's a, it's a lively bantering conversation. And the broker's like, hey, I, I got to go to another meeting. You guys can stay here. Because he's like, this isn't going to go anywhere, right? So by the time I left, I said, Jerry, I have to leave before this thing goes to like 30. So I left, and we had some conversations back and forth. But the one thing he told me is he closes all his deals when he buys in 14 days all cash. So he's not going to give any time for anything because that's what everybody else should do too. Now, this is a $17.5 million land sale that needs some form of entitlement, right? I'm not a, I mean, I never say never, but there's not many that would do that deal. I was confident of that. So over the next six months, we talk. I don't know if they had it in escrow with somebody that canceled, but there was definitely periods of time where we didn't speak. Big gaps of time. And then by, this was in September, by around January, February, they came back. And I thought, all right, this is my opportunity. So I I offered a 30-day look and a 90-day close. And I just thought, well, you know, this is a really old, old, old piece of property. It's got an absentee owner. There's probably a problem here someplace. Let's just get going on due diligence. So we spent a lot of money the first 30 days. More than we would ever do on a deal that was speculative like that. Just because, again, it goes back to conviction. I absolutely absolutely had it in my head that I was going to get that deal done one way or the other. And like day 29, my due diligence guy comes back. He's like, look what I found in the city of uh, Phoenix's file. It was a letter from 1976 that said the site had been deed restricted to a story and a half. And they were touting it as 56 feet. So I called the broker and I said, hey, I got your brochure right here. It says approved at 56 feet. I got this letter right here. He goes, send it to me. I sent it to him. He calls me. He goes, I'll call you back. So two days later, he calls me back. I said, what did Jerry say? He said, uh, Jerry says you made it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, all right. He goes, but I'm going to show it to his lawyer and then we'll see what we can do. <laughs> so we go. A uh, week later, I get a call. Hey, you got to be at this lawyer's office at this time and Jerry's going to be there. Um, 
So we go there and there's like 10 people in the room and, and uh, his lawyer's one of the old time zoning guys. So he and I talk for 10 minutes and he says to Jerry, he goes, hey, you got to, you got to sell it to this guy. He's probably going to get the zoning for you. So Jerry's like, face turns red. He says, everybody out of the room except for Jeff, the broker and me. So everybody leaves. So he says, give me $500,000 right now, um, non-refundable, and I'll give you time to zone it. And I looked at the broker, and he looked at me, and I was like, it's not going to happen. So we, for the next 20 minutes, he went from 500 to 250 down to basically threw the paper on the table and said, fine, have him write it up. And by the way, you have to pay the lawyer for the meeting today. <laughs> I said, all right. That was his win. Yeah. So then he got me again before closing because he defaulted on the purchase agreement and signed a new lease with the tenants in there that we had to buy out. And he said, well, I, you know, if you don't like it, you can just I'll give you back your deposit. <laughs> so now we have a provision in every contract that's called the Jerry Clause where we have damages if something happens on a long-range zone deal. Toby built uh, a 160-room AC hotel. And we built a four-story, 115,000-square-foot office building. And there was one lender in the country that would do it, and it was Bank of the Ozarks. How many did you talk to to get to that one? 30. Wow. There was one. What caused you to say, as a condition, I have to meet Jerry? Uh, I just felt like on those really tricky deals like that where there's no – that are going to require a relationship that you have to have over time. It's important because you got to know what you're dealing with and you don't know what you got until you sit down eyeball to eyeball. Yeah. yeah. Cu couple more and then we'll bring yeah. it to a close here. You, you've said a few times I'd say to young brokers or I give this kind of advice or that advice, mm -hmm. anything you want to share that comes to mind with anyone listening. Oh, man. I mean, I I would go, what I would just tell people, if they don't already know this, you have to do what you love, period. That'd be the number one. That's what that's what I tell my kids. That's what I would tell anybody. Um, and you got to do something that you believe in because there's going to be so many opportunities to turn back. I mean, you're going to get multiple chances every single day to give up, right? So you got to have conviction. You got to be tenacious. I've heard the do what you love before. I haven't heard it framed in a way. Do what you believe in. Yeah. What's a dream project that you haven't developed yet that you absolutely want to develop? A dream project? You know, I don't think like that. Um, I just like, uh, I like complicated mixed use is probably my favorite thing to do. Did you have a dream car that you wanted to buy when you, when you started to develop? Yes, I have had dream cars. Before. But you don't have a dream project that you would. I don't really have a dream project, <laughs> you know. Um, I like mixed use office, hotel, restaurant, entertainment type stuff. That'd probably be, you know, that'd probably be um, at the top of the list. And there's less opportunity for that than there is industrial. For now. For now. For now. Good point. Um, for now. You know, industrial is a volume business. Um, mixed use is more of a specialty business. So they're, you know, they're different. Um, and, you know, where the industrial market might be here and it's in its cycle, the other products might be here. 
So there'll be, there's some opportunity. There's always opportunity somewhere. And that's uh, hearing you talk and hearing kind of you running things back is you don't seem to chase deals per se. You know what you, what you want, you know, when you see it, but you have the, I don't know if it's patience or discipline to set the table and let, let the right conditions present themselves as it kind of comes to you. I don't know if that's intentional, but what I would say is this, is that we pass on a lot of stuff that a lot of other people clearly have gone out and made successes. I'm sure that's true about every developer because you can't do every deal, right? But, you know, we always, like, feel really good about the ones we do pursue, And the other ones, it's not like, I don't feel like we make these huge conscious decisions. It's more like, I think when you see something and it just sort of like, you know, it when you see it and then you just go all in and you have to, you have to be committed and you can't be committed to a hundred things at once. So I go into these with takeaways that I've learned from you and then I always come out with more. So keep keep it simple. Yeah. Courage and conviction, which you just reaffirmed. Yeah. You know, be confident enough to act and don't try to make a good deal better. Yeah. True. But I will say this the difference between acting separates a lot in development. It separates a lot. There's lots of um people that would be great at development, uh, that maybe aren't in it because of that piece right there. Say more about that. I think it's risk. It's, you know, you have to, you have to have conviction and you have to know that, you know, whatever you're working on, um, you know, has a high chance of success and you have to be willing to, to risk it. I just finished the audiobook of Matthew McConaughey's green lights. Yeah. Carrie in my office read that says it's great. So toward the end, he said, um, it's not risk if you can't lose a fight. True. That's what comes to mind. When, True. Maybe people don't want to act because they don't want to be in a fight. And I was actually, when I was listening to this, I thought about development is like a fight. It is. You start, you start the process and you have to fight to get it finished. It's, it's <laughs> a fight. Um, it, it's a fight for sure. I think... You know, it's all perspective. It's it's how you it's how you feel about it, right? And when you go through the first few, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I feel like I've seen a lot. There's always something that I haven't seen before. And you have to be prepared for that. And you can't be easily you can't be easily discouraged. You just can't be if, if I mean, there's lots of other things to do with your life besides being a developer if you're easily discouraged. (laughs) That's a great note to end on. Yeah. Jeff, thank you for doing this. Pleasure. Thanks, Hiam. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways Podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please... Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.